Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to episode 9 of From Page to Practice. This episode is all about dual coding with teachers by Oliver Caviglioli and features an introduction to the book by Oliver and practical applications from five teachers from a range of backgrounds. So before I say any more, here's Oliver to say a little about what inspired him to write the book, why he believes it's important, and how what he has written about has affected his own teaching practice in the past. Hello everyone, this is Oliver Caviglioli, explaining a little bit about my book that came out last summer, uh, Dual Coding with Teachers. The first thing is, why did I write it? Well, I guess after four and a bit decades in teaching, I was just about to retire, and looking around at what I found on Twitter, I didn't think that... Well, I thought if I didn't write the book, I couldn't see that anyone else would cover the same material. Because, kind of more luck than judgment, I seem to have a particular combination of background, which is... I more or less unique, I guess, which is that my father was an architect and gave me daily sermons on good taste. Um, and then later, I didn't follow him. I went into special education for many decades, eventually being a head teacher. And so during those decades, I spent hours and hours talking to educational psychologists about research. And so decades of reading research about communication and cognition, and then with my graphics background, it seemed a natural combination to become what I am now, which is an information designer. Um, the, other th- that, the other challenge I had with regard to my book was that um, I needed to walk the talk. I had a challenge that I, I criticised a lot of educational publications and policies as being really inappropriately boring and insufficiently structured, um, that I needed to demonstrate what it was I was talking about. And so my book was really aimed for all teachers, busy teachers who could dip in, understand your coding on a more practical and yet sophisticated level than they would than just a question of sticking an icon with a word. And also really to those policymakers and leaders who who write policies and sweat over them. And in my opinion, they're kind of doing it the wrong way. It's kind of an extension of an essay Whereas I'm arguing strongly it should be more like the work of journalists who really are great at identifying hierarchies and getting the the most important information out clearly at the beginning rather than at the end as a conclusion. And so the key takeaways, I'd say, were the fact that I found that researchers said that as effective as dual coding is as a teaching practice, the major reasons why teachers weren't getting those benefits in their classroom was because they chose the wrong visual. Um, uh, On my courses, I liken it to somewhat as if I turned up to a building site and I had a big kit bag and all of a sudden I took out a chisel and gormlessly said, I like chisels. 
it was obviously ludicrous because it all depends on the nature of the task at hand and the materials as to which tool I'd use. So similarly, it, I find it equally inappropriate for someone to say, I like this graphic organiser or visual, because it all depends and it's not necessary. It's not really. We use the word design. It's not a graphic design. It's an information design. We need to look at the nature of the of the subject content that you're explaining, and understand it in terms of the s structure of the knowledge, and from that, choose the correct graphic organizer. And those graphic organizers really will be based on the fact that. Um, it's not a question of, of the word being visual, it's visuospatial. So it's the way the words are arranged and organised in a space that means that you can, can, you can capture and convey meaning. As a researcher said, here comes a bit of jargon coming up, computationally more efficient than with a piece of text. Of course, it's best. It's almost essential to use both the diagram and the text. Um... The second biggest danger that researchers said that happens, or rather a pitfall that teachers do, is that even when they've chosen the right visual, still they may not reap the, the, the fullest benefits from their practice because of poor execution. And so in my book, there's um, a little section on pen craft. So whether you're drawing on a visualiser on the board, there's some very simple guides to make sure that what you write is really clear. Um, for everybody. And then on a computer, there are four design guides I, I have that are really clear. Um, and if you follow them, you can have tremendous improvements immediately because they're really quite easy to apply. Talking about applications, one of the questions I ask myself that I'd like to share is anecdotes of how I use dual coding in my teaching. Well, since I was working in special schools, um, I was using visual communication all the time all the time. And what was interesting is that when I became a head teacher, I started using it increasingly with staff. I remember being quite bored and frustrated in staff meetings when I was a teacher. So I decided I never would make my staff suffer like that. So most of the information that used to be spoken at staff meetings in that era, I'm talking 25 years ago, I produced every week. So every morning in their pigeonholes, I had a one page newsletter, uh, leaflet, information uh, leaflet, where I had three columns and I demonstrated how to have headlines and um, easier to read. That then expanded into a whole catalogue of magazines. Um, I had ParentWise, the first one was StaffWise, and then I had something called LearnWise, where um, after building up a library of books in the staff room, I found they weren't read. So I challenged myself to summarise a whole book onto one side of A4. So that kind of was the start of my information design and praising work. And lastly, my next book, um, really coming to an end of a project with Tom Sherrington at Teacher Head, where we have a book called Teaching Walkthroughs, where we combined our talents and we have 50 teaching techniques that we think are pretty key and essential, each of which has been um, depicted in five stages um, visually and with Tom's verbal description. So it's a combination of uh, both our experiences. And that book will be uh, published by John Catt, both our publishers, and that will be um, early spring. Thank you. It's been quite interesting talking about visuals without the opportunity to show you any, but I hope that makes some sense for you.
Goodbye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. In terms of my own takeaways from the book and talks I've heard from Ollie, such as Research Ed Rugby and various things on Twitter, I've started to think about um, my practice in this area a bit more. It's really got me thinking about how I arrange text and images to their fullest benefit. It's helped me to improve slides for talks such as um, the Charter College of Teaching Early Career Conference where I had just um, icons on the screen and I spoke my information. It removed my comfort blanket, but I hope it helped. And um, Ollie's mention of one pages are making me consider how I could maybe summarise these podcast episodes. I really enjoy the why, what, how, which, who, when, where sort of layout of the book, um, as well as the clear contents, which allows you to really navigate to exactly what you're looking for in terms of the theory, research or tips on applying it. It's also really helpful that Oliver has included a number of suggested routes through the book, depending on your level of expertise in the area already. I've not got too stuck into this myself yet, but the more I'm thinking about it now, and the more I'm hearing from today's contributors, the more I'm looking forward to trying. Next, we're going to hear from a range of teachers about their reading and how they've applied it in their practice. First, we're going to hear from Oliver Walsh, an MFL teacher. My name's Ollie Walsh. I'm a Spanish teacher. I've just started my third year of teaching and I tweet at MFL. And Twitter is actually the first place where I became acquainted with Ollie Cav's work. I think like most teachers who are on Twitter and actively engaged in that sort of online community, it's been quite hard to escape this sphere of influence which Ollie Cav has had the last year slash two years. And like most, I was initially drawn in by the sharing of beautifully crafted resources, documents, slides, posters, sketch notes, infographics uh, that he shares to his followers. And so I bought the book. Now, the book kicks off with this uh, paragraph which contains three questions underneath. And the reader is invited to comprehend this text and answer the questions. The text is quite difficult to comprehend. There's a lot of information in there and it's scattered about and initially right to the point the argument is given to you on the next page some information is better shown uh, visually and as you keep reading the book this becomes more apparent and there's evidence behind it and skills and tips are offered to you as a reader to improve your resources. As a language teacher who already follows Gianfranco Conti, I'm somewhat familiar with what the cognitive load theory is and how working memory works, Um, but this book felt like a bit more of a step up. There's uh, a lot behind it. It's not just a book about how to create a nice document, which I wasn't particularly aware of, um, but the clue is in the title, dual coding. If you've never heard those two words before, then you won't know what's in store for you but it gives an introduction to this idea of dual coding whilst also giving the reader an introduction to the cognitive load theory and a bit more about working memory. For me, one takeaway was that your working memory has around four different slots in it and there's a plus or minus one on there. Um, So the retention of information in your working memory is narrowed down to three 
four or five. At least that's what I've understood. I think before I read this book, I thought it was five or six. So immediately I've learned something. And what I like to do with my students, since I teach a language, is use sentence builders, which is a table with, say, four um, columns. And we create sentences using sent- using words from each column. And those sometimes those sentences contain many words. And what I do before those before I introduce those activities now is let them know how their working memory works and that's really had an effect the last week as I've started to learn a little bit more about the working memory capacity. I think as a language teacher as well it's a useful conversation to have with students because learning a language is quite difficult and requires you to use and learn a lot of vocabulary. For me what struck a well, what I identified personally with was what Ollie Cav in his book calls fontitis. In my first and second years of teaching, I created a lot of resources and I wanted to stay away from the sort of cliche comic sans, word art, clip art um, style of resources. And so naturally what I did was went on defont.com and downloaded a whole repertoire of fancy fonts. 10 to 20 maybe and in in some documents you would see two to three of these different fonts and not just in black either they would be in orange and blue and they would be in white uh, layered upon a google maps background quite hard to read i thought that i was doing a really good job designing my resources what i didn't know was actually i was distracting quite a lot from the content of the resource with the sort of with the with the, well, with the look of the resource. The book contains design principles for creating posters, slides, documents, graphic organisers, diagrams, sketch notes. It will teach you a set of four steps to sort of hone your resource creating, which are cut, align, chunk and group. And what this does, which is good, is it makes you consider what is pertinent to the resource and that which isn't. So what you're left with is a clear resource which is almost refined to the task which it needs to complete. No fancy fonts, no fancy colours. The idea is that the pupil or the student who who has access to this resource Um, The resource is working with them, not against them. It's not distracting them. So I would say that, for me, um, this has been a a revolution to my resource creating. It has meant that I've had to basically remake every single resource that I've made, and I'm currently in the process of doing that. But on the flip side, the resources that I'm creating, they're so much more navigable. They're clear. Also, they're beautifully made. Oli Kav talks about how he wants to magazineify resources. He mentions that there's a reason why uh, newspapers and magazines are still around and still being read. And if our resources were more like magazines, then, well, he's all for it. And having read the book, I think I'm all for it as well. The response so far from students in the class has been wholly positive. Students had been used to my resources with overuse of different coloured fonts and initially were quite not reluctant 
but it was a bit of a change to get used to the new style. But even those that were m most keen to, to use my resources, which contained um, fonts from the decorative section of defont.com, are now starting to, well, well, they're starting to become familiar with the new style and even like it. So why should somebody pick up this book? Firstly, if you do not know anything about cognitive load theory, working memory, or ha what happens in your brain when a new piece of information, whether it be auditory, visual, when it's if you don't know what happens when that is presented to you, then this book is an excellent introduction to that to the theory of cognitive load and dual coding. Ollie Cav also gives quite a comprehensive bibliography and extended reading list, um, which I've actually used. I've just bought a book on, which is called non, The Non-Designer's Design Book, which I'm about to start today, which I'm looking forward to using, as it's going to hopefully um, build upon what I've learned in this even more. As a PGCE student and NQT, I quite struggled with creating resources and spent hours and hours making them. If you would like a pretty easy set of rules, principles um, to remember to create resources, then you need to buy this book. Also, if you are a teacher who is using lots of decorative fonts, lots of different colours, lots of pictures, and you're considering simplifying your work, refining it, and making work a little bit easier to digest on the page for students, then I would buy this book as well. And I would say that within an hour of reading it, you're probably going to be on Microsoft Word or PowerPoint, redesigning um, some aspect of a resource and being motivated about it as well, because it's so nice to see that you're, the, the, the skills that you're learning, the, sk the skills that are being presented to you, they're immediately applicable. I think, for me, the most underused feature of Word and PowerPoint that I had never used until about a month, two months ago, was the grid. And now, I don't make a resource without looking at the grid. So for me, it's been an absolute revolution, and I don't think I'll make a resource again without using a principle that I've learned from this book. Thanks for that, Ollie. For me personally, it's great to hear an MFL teacher talking about this and see how they've applied it to their practice. It's really interesting how Oliver has taken away more than just the design principles and talks about working memory and the effects that that might have on language learning. I'm really pleased that he's mentioned how sometimes the resources we cre create have a look that takes away from the content. It's really important that we make the resource work with the content rather than against it. It's really clear that Ollie has really engaged with this book and it's something he's become quite passionate about. I've always really liked Ollie's resources and this is only going to continue to make them better. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Next, we're going to hear from Lou Smith, who, as well as teaching primary MFL, used to be a secondary science teacher and due to students in a range of different contexts. So what she has to say is going to be applicable to many different backgrounds. Hi, I'm Lou Smith, a primary MFL teacher from rugby. I've taught for a long time, since 1985, 
but I originally trained as a secondary science teacher. You might be wondering how I got into primary languages. That's a good question. When I returned part-time from a career break, I went as a science specialist to a small North Hants village primary. One of the years I was there, I was asked to teach some French too. It was a good time to start teaching French as North Hants were rolling out a fantastic free primary languages training programme. Quickly, I was hooked and established it in all of Key Stage 2. This was fortunate in hindsight, as I haven't taught science since the demise of Key Stage 2 sets paper. In my current school, I only teach MFL. However, outside school, I'm a tutor across several phases and subjects. I've always been interested in neuroscience and how the brain is involved in learning. More recently, the rise of cognitive science has captured my imagination. I first came across dual coding specifically at a research ed event in rugby a couple of years ago. Oliver Caliviglioli was talking about it, and it was like a light bulb moment. It tied together the cognitive science that I'd been reading about and some of the techniques gained on the superb training I had from Northants. During that training, we were encouraged to use actions or wor- for words and phrases and pictures with few words on the PowerPoint slides to accompany our teaching. A few years ago, I did some very simple action research as I was really interested in whether the actions I'd been trained to use actually did help with memorisation of words. The results from that showed that it did, but I wasn't really sure why. In his talk, Oliver was illustrating the effect of attention switching when there's too much text on a slide, negating the positive dual coding effects of any images. It also increases the cognitive load and overloads the short-term memory. Good dual coding doesn't do this. Short-term memory can only store and process a small number of items of input. Dual coding happens when the same put is in more than one form, in other words, auditory and visual. It can be processed then simultaneously and helps learning and memorisation. It's like there's a dual processor. It's been found that this is called a visual spatial sketchpad. A later conversation with Oliver confirmed that this dual processor can actually process some kinesthetic information too. So the actions my pupils do at the same time as their words or phrases do act as dual coding. My key takeaways from this are dual coding needs to be done properly. It's much more than just adding an image. Pictures or actions and movements act as dual coding when alongside auditory information. It can enhance learning and memorisation, I'm sure not just in language learning, but in other areas too. And finally, good dual coding makes for a good PowerPoint. But don't just believe me. Go on and read about it in one of the many books, Oliver's books called Dual Coding for Teachers. It'll improve your practice and maybe you'll come up with an idea or ideas of your own and then you can share them too. Thanks Lou, it's really great to hear from someone who's got such a diverse range of experience. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast.
Now we're going to hear three back-to-back contributions from Joe Berkmar of the Talking Teachers podcast, Ben Ranson and Matt Galvin. So, my name is Ben Ranson, I'm a geography teacher, and I currently teach at a comprehensive school in rural Oxfordshire. I found myself teaching in all sorts of places, I taught in China for a few years, and I've had some leadership roles at kind of middle and senior levels, but right now, in the classroom, full-time, just really trying to focus on how to teach geography really, really well and just do a really good job of it. I think Dual Coding for Teachers is probably the book that's had the biggest impact on just what I'm doing day to day and how my classroom practice has changed. Now, I got to see Ollie Cav uh, back at a research ed conference in Birmingham in March, and I've been wanting to see him for some time because I just felt like he was onto something or just understood something that I didn't, that he just seemed to have a great clarity to how he was explaining things and how he was demonstrating things that I just felt like I was sitting on the edges of and just observing without really understanding why. And I remember coming away from that conference with kind of two ideas on my head. One was that he was bringing out a book and that this book was going to answer most of the questions that I had. And secondly, for some reason, having things in a widescreen format just seemed to really matter and just seemed much cooler than it did before. Now, I think that there's a really core link between the academic discipline of geography and the ideas of dual coding. I think that a lot of the ideas and concepts that we think of as the core components of a good geographical education lend themselves really well to visual depictions. And I think the chances are that every geography teacher across the country is already explaining an idea like how a river meanders using dual coding. They're using an interplay of visual and verbal stimulus and that's kind of helping them give a really clear explanation and it's helping the students really clearly understand it. So I can think of three things that I would say that reading Dual Coding for Teachers really did for me and took it, as this podcast suggests, from page to practice. The first one would be about language and about vocabulary. Now, I don't know about you, but I find words like differentiation to be really contested. There seems to be a lot of different things that we might mean or a lot of different interpretations that we might have of the same word. Whereas when I talk about something like working memory, we're just a lot clearer about what we mean by that. And I think I think this comes from dual coding for teachers. I think it gave me uh, a form of vocabulary that I could use. And as that book circulated within our department, it gave our department a shared vocabulary. And that's slowly but surely become a shared language within our school. The second thing would just be how much clearer it's made a lot of the explanations that we've tried to give for things. Now, I am a huge advocate for reading. The more I understand about language, and particularly as I've gotten much better at grammar over the last couple of years, the more I think it's just really important that we're able to learn things by reading. However, I recognise that sentential sentences have limitations. There's a lot to do with the relationships between ideas and sentential sentences that are just implicit. Dual coding makes those implicit relationships really explicit. It makes them exceptionally clear to anyone irregardless of how able they are to construct a visualisation just by reading it. One of the examples that I normally use for this is talking about precipitation and explaining why it rains. So rainfall is actually incredibly complex. It's determined by a bunch of underpinning scientific concepts. So the reason that hot air rises is because it's trying to form an equilibrium with its surroundings. That requires you to have an understanding of the fact that air is less dense at higher altitudes. It's quite easy to visually demonstrate this by just having fewer molecules the further away from the surface that you get. It's quite hard to write something that relates to rainfall that makes it quite as clear. So dual coding allows us to show the hierarchical nature of knowledge 
in terms of how it applies to what we see as concrete examples. Um, dual coding also allows us to give a much clearer understanding by linking in a lot of other associated imagery that students have. So when we're demonstrating the idea of a rain shadow, which would be kind of our hot air rises, cools, precipitates over the mountains, and now we have dry air running down the other side. If we stick a cactus on that side, even if a cactus wouldn't necessarily be an appropriate kind of plant for that, for that particular environment, our students have an understanding of what a cactus is, the kind of places in which it grows, what they're going to think about the soil there. If I just want to make it really clear the precipitation rates are really, really low there, that visual indicator is just going to really help them grasp hold of the idea. So what was our first thing was vocabulary. Our second one was how clear it made instructions. And our third one was the fact that we've, we've learned that Dual coding doesn't just work for our young people, it works remarkably well for adults as well. So a lot of the revision materials that we've tried to send home to parents, we've now used walkthroughs to just make it really clear how they can be helpful. Now for people outside of geography teaching communities, you might not know this, but the Twitter geography teacher community is a thing of wonder. And there is a project going on at the moment where teachers are volunteering their time and effort to share how they teach some of those harder to, to teach and kind of more tricky ideas. And time and time again, when you look at it, you see that the backbone of teaching it is built on dual coding, which is taking the time to really clearly model and construct it, to chunk it down into small pieces and just to have students recreate that. Now, I've tried to support and help out the kind of how I teach project by creating walkthroughs for them. And what we found is that sharing ideas of how we teach things by dual coding how to teach them has worked really, really effectively as well. And I like to use the analogy of dual coding for teachers as kind of a gateway drug. We've started with dual coding and it's ended up taking us down a whole route of just getting much better at whole language instruction and ideas like direct instruction and ending up with, with places like Engelman. So dual coding for teachers has really changed a lot just in terms of how our lessons look, how we've tried to visually represent ideas and how we're communicating things throughout our entire department and increasingly throughout the school. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Hello, my name's Joe Burkmar and I'm a PE teacher and a director of a skit in Dorset. I am also the co-host of the Talking Teachers podcast, which aims to share expertise in all areas of education. We have episodes with Hal Roberts, Andy Buck, Tom Sherrington and Ollie Caviglioli, to name but a few. Find us on Twitter at the Talking Teachers Podcast and listen on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. However, today I'm here to talk to you about dual coding with teachers by Oliver Caviglioli. The most impressive thing about the book is the way Ollie Caviglioli walks you through very complex cognitive science with ease. I'm not a huge fan of academic reading but found this completely accessible throughout. As you would expect, the book is amazing in its design and layout and this makes it a pleasure to read. The first section of the book explains the why and asks you to complete a task which highlights the feeling of cognitive overload. I thought this was excellent and have since used this in CPD I have led. Following this, you select which entry level you are. I chose novice and within an hour I was making resources that I was proud to share. I can now honestly say I am addicted to dual coding and think about layout and design every time I am making anything. It is also not an exaggeration to say that it has changed the way I teach. The clarity I have from my resources has increased my confidence using the visualizer and I now model in almost every lesson.
One of the biggest lessons I learned from the book, though, is to see yourself as a designer and the students as your end user. You should focus on everything you make being for them and their learning. It sounds simple, but I know I was doing a lot of PowerPoints to remind me not to help with the learning. I took so much from the book, but I will not try and talk about every page. The first thing I took is what Kirshner said about double-barreled learning, which is the combination of the visual and auditory inputs. By providing a picture with the explanation, we have learnt it using two inputs, which makes it so much easier to recall. The second is how much of my teaching was transient. I would explain something with nothing for the students to refer to. The information would float around the room for a bit, then would be gone. I now know this needs to be made concrete, so it can be recalled later by the students. Thirdly is the teacher's hidden schema. We have learnt the information at some point and created a schema to recall it. However, how often do we share this with the students? It will help them understand it much more easily. This is the main reason I have started modelling more. Some other things I have loved are the Noun Project, which is a free online library of simple graphics for words. This has helped me hugely making resources quickly that hold a theme. Also, grid lines on PowerPoint. Click View and then Grid Lines. It helps make all of your icons and boxes line up. The final thing is the split attention effect. Asking students to concentrate on the screen and a worksheet causes them to use up cognitive load. Instead, put everything all in one place. I have tried to fit all of the content onto one page, which has been tough, but the students' recall has improved massively. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Give it a read. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Hello, uh, my name is Matt Galvin. I'm Vice Principal at Winsford Academy in Cheshire, uh, which is part of the Fallabrew multi Academy Trust. So the thing that I've been working on is uh, coming up with ideas to teach quite complex content Uh, I'm a science teacher and a chemistry specialist and uh, a couple of the topics we've got to teach have tier three vocabulary, so domain specific and technical language. And there's some elements of it that are um, both sequential and tangential, so they bring in information and concepts from other units across the, uh, the scientific spectrum. Looking at this, I um, was really inspired by the work of Oli Cav, um, and we actually had him in as um, a presenter at the Multi-Academy Trust CPD Day. And when I've spoken to him, looked at his work, what I wanted to do was to, to trial it with some students. And, and part of the reason just for uh, giving it a go as an innovation, but also to make sure that the kids uh, can know more and remember more, this kind of curriculum focus that's coming from Ofsted at the moment, uh, just tapping into that and, and trying uh, new techniques to make sure that they haven't got isolated facts, but they actually understand uh, how how different ideas link together. So uh, I've trialled it over the last few weeks um, and then shared it with colleagues and across the trust uh, and then got some student voice. In terms of a journey, um, the first thing to do was just set up a, a simple PowerPoint slide with a, a, a simple timeline on it. So uh, if you imagine a horizontal bar coming across with uh, around three uh, nodes coming off uh, above and below, um, it was okay, uh, but I actually took some feedback before I used it with the students from Twitter. And 
where I'd used Google Images, I'd used colour uh, images from Google. Uh, and the feedback I had was to use icons instead. So uh, I used a fantastic website called The Noun Project, uh, which has lots of black and white icons for, for any image that you need. Um, so I used that instead of the Google Images um, and trialled it with the students. And they absolutely loved it. I, I, I used it with a, a quite a simple uh, topic to start with. Um, and got some feedback from the students. Uh, I did it in quite a stilted way. So in terms of my own um, way that I teach, I'm a bit of a, a storyteller. Um, and what I had to do was really slow myself down, um, just use the language that the students actually needed to remember and know. And I told them I was doing this, so it wouldn't look too artificial. They, the first time through, they, uh, they copied it before I started talking. I then talked them through it. Um, and then I went through and actually added an annotations on the third run through um, so that the students could get some insight as to what was going on at each of the different parts of the diagram. Took some feedback from the students, uh, a couple of groups, a top set and a bottom set, year 11. Uh, they both really liked it. So then I went into the more complex topic, which was my original intention. So uh, this one I did slightly differently again. I, I set a, a summary slide up but it had quite a bit of very technical information and quite complex information from the spe the exam specification. What I did was I had that summary, which was a bit too busy, if I'm honest, for what I wanted it, but I needed them to see those diagrams straight away. Um, and then I explained each of those different elements slide by slide. So each slide would have uh, one equation on or, or one um, you know, schematic diagram from molecules and so on. And I'd explain the theory behind that. And then I'd go back to the, uh, the summary sheet uh, and talk them through it. Again, the uh, feedback was really positive from the students. Uh, they understood it. And I think it's probably the best I've taught that topic. It's a topic that I, that I um, find challenging to teach. Um, there's a lot of biology in there, which isn't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a chemist and a, and a physicist um, by training. So it brings in a lot of elements that I'm not as familiar with. And I felt like I actually taught it quite well this time in that the students really made the links between uh, the different parts. In terms of next steps, uh, as a school, we're looking at this as a, as a fantastic active teaching and learning group in the school. And uh, they're trialling things in different areas. So I've got uh, teachers in uh, food and health and social care, um, in English, trying these ideas out um, and, and, and feeding back to the group. And also across the trust, again, we're sharing this in, in terms of the teaching and learning newsletter across the trust with people trialling different things and coming back with their feedback. So interesting work and uh, the journey continues. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks so much to Joe, Matt and Ben for their contributions. I really like how clear they were about the exact ways in which they'd applied their reading of this book to their teaching practice. Things I particularly liked were Joe's mention of ensuring the resource is fit for purpose, making sure the PowerPoint slides are designed with the students in mind, not for teacher prompts. Ben talks about the Geography Teacher community on Twitter and Matt gives us a great description that listeners could learn a lot from and try out themselves. All that leaves me to say is that the next episode from Page for Practice will be episode 10 and it will be on the Making Every Lesson Count series. So far I've got contributions lined up from a few different people including authors of various of the books in the series and it would be great to have you involved. 
I'm also giving away a copy of the original book and the MFL version, so check out my Twitter page for that. Of course, depending on when you're listening, this may well already be over. Please be warned. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash pagepracticepodcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.